Hello, hello, and welcome to Comic Book Herald Live. Hey, everybody, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of comicbookherald.com. If you are here live with us, let me know how things are looking. Let us know how things are sounding. We'll get started here on CBH Live talking about the day's comics, in particular, Judgment Day number two, the second issue out in this Marvel event. Four issues out so far. We got two main events, two tie-ins. The event has not missed. Not a miss among them. We got four very good to great issues. Uh, I'm throwing X-Men Red number five in there as one of the great ones. Things have been good. Things have been good. We're going to talk about Judgment Day uh, number two today, as well as Immortal X-Men and X-Men Red, which came out last week. We did not have a live stream last week. I was generally unplugged from all things, it was wonderful. I highly recommend it if you can swing it. But I was excited to get back and check out Immortal and X-Men Red. And uh, the wait was worth it. The wait was worth it. They were awesome. So thanks to everybody who's here live. Really appreciate it. Definitely let me know. Uh, any questions, any thoughts, anything you want to talk about here on the stream, get them in, in the comments. I'm seeing we have some first-time uh, joiners here live, including all the way, all the way from the UK. What's up, Alexander? Thanks so much for joining I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, I love having people here to ask questions, and, and definitely I will dive into the chat as we get going. But in the meantime, let's dive in. Now, spoilers for today's comics will definitely follow, as well as last week's comics. Again, that is primarily going to concentrate around Immortal X-Men, uh, X-Men Red, and then Judgment Day number two, the event issue that came out today. Okay, if you haven't read them and you are worried about spoilers, read them. Come on back when you have that would be my recommendation. Let's do this. It's time for Judgment Dave to talk about some Judgment Day. Now, I got to say, I don't think there will be a crack in Krakoa on the second issue of Judgment Day. Um, there's not a clear in for me in terms of a thing I want to talk about that, again, I don't I don't want to make a video that's just a recap of here's what happened. That doesn't interest me um, as, a, as a fan and as a person. <laughs> so there are other channels that do that and some that do it well. Um, but the thing that did get my attention was definitely all this celestial building. All this building of a celestial that's going on in Judgment Day number two. So let's talk about this. All right, we got Kieran Gillen, Valerio Shidi, Marty Gracia, Clayton Cowles putting together this event issue. The synopsis of Judgment Day. This is a big one, and this is going to tie straight away to X-Men Red, which came out last week, as well as the events, of course, of Judgment Day number one. It mentions Uranus, grandfather of sorts of Thanos. He attacked Araka, as we saw in X-Men Red. It was the hour of Uranus. He attacked, viciously assaulted, and murdered hundreds, thousands of, of citizens on planet Araco, a.k.a. the artist formerly known, the planet formerly known as Mars, okay? What is referenced in the synopsis is that this resulted in the temporary death of many mutants. Now, that language in particular, I think, is very interesting. And it's very interesting because what we talked about at the end of Judgment Day number one was wiping out vast swaths of Krakoan mutants would 
not necessarily take them off the board in any lasting capacity because of Kirkcohen resurrection protocols, right? We have the death of death in this era. That is part of the Hickman template for House and Powers of what it means to be the Kirkcohen era of X-Men comics. When they die, they can come back via resurrection protocols. Maybe it will take some time. Maybe it won't at all, right? Today in Judgment Day number two, we see Exodus get it and then bounce back because he's prioritized because he's an Omega-level warrior on the X-Men team, okay? But on Arako, what we had talked about was not all of those mutants might want to come back. It might actually be counter to their culture, counter to their beliefs, uh, that, to go through resurrection protocols. So alluding to the result as temporary death of many mutants, I found really interesting. Um, that, that feels, there's more story to be told there for sure. Now in some cases, like Cable died on Mars, right? Cable died on planet Arako. We see him back already. Uh, in, in Judgment Day number two, right? So, like, the Krakoan mutants who died there obviously can be resurrected, with the exception, possibly, of Magneto, who, if you've read the issue, no, doesn't need it, and Storm. And we don't, I don't think we know Storm's status for sure at this point either. Uh, both of whom said in the uh, the Great Ring of Araka with the Araka leadership that they would also forego resurrection, that they would live the true Araka way. Right, so that that's a thing that needs to be addressed. But I'm curious, like, because I could definitely see a situation where the Quiet Council, Charlie and and the gang, right, come to a conclusion that they're like, oh, we'll just resurrect all the Iraqi mutants, not understanding that they might not want that, not understanding that that actually might be counter to sort of their core and their essence as a culture, right? So, could something like that happen? Absolutely. Um, but again, saying it's temporary, I feel like that's in there to alleviate concerns and, and potential anger that fans might feel about all of those mutants getting wiped out by Uranus, because, like, it kind of sucks, <laughs> you know, especially as a fan of what's being created there and of the potential of all these new mutants in this culture and everything that's going on there. Like, the, the easiest thing as a fan in, in terms of seeing more of those stories is wanting all of them to be resurrected. Whether or not that will actually happen does feel TBD. Does feel TBD. Um, I'm seeing here in the comment, was Storm in Judgment Day? Was she in there? I mean, I read it once. I didn't. I, I wasn't even thinking about that. She did appear in Miss Marvel Wolverine team-up, which is clearly before Judgment Day. So that's that doesn't help us at all. But can we get a second confirmation on Storm in Judgment Day number two, because that would imply she's resurrected. Was she even on Arako? I don't know. I'm getting the details confused. That's continuity. Somebody tell me in the comments. Is Storm around? Is she already around? Okay, cool. She's resurrected. She's back. Or she was never there. Either way, we don't have to worry about that. We just have to worry about, are we going to resurrect all of these Arako mutants? Now, what X-Men Red did incredibly well, and I had... Full confidence this would happen because Al Ewing's great. That series has been great, as I mentioned multiple times. We have dueling aces right now. We have dueling aces in the X-Men line between Immortal X-Men and X-Men Red. Two genuine, bona fide, number one stars in the X-Men lineup. It is a fantastic position to be in if you are a fan of these comics. It is not something that the Krakoa era has had to date, uh, and it's, it's like... Two of the best books at Marvel right now are coming out, and they're both coming out on the X-Men line. It's super cool when they come out the same week because it's basically impossible to decide which one's better. For my money, X-Men Red last week was definitely the king 
Um, and it was the king primarily because it said, okay, judgment day number one, Gilan laid the gauntlet, said, okay, Uranus is here. He's destroying the hell out of Morocco. What are we going to do with that? And Ewing found a way to simultaneously build up and, and assert the dominance and the power of this new character, of this new eternal with, with familial relations with, with all of the Eternals that we know, but namely Thanos, right? And shows that like Uranus is new, but he's not light Thanos, okay? He's not light beer Thanos, right? He's the real deal. He shows up and he puts a whooping on all your faves on planet Araka, right? Including the Great Ring and the new characters there, but Magneto, um, uh, Cable, <laughs> Abigail Brand, right? What's she going to do? You know, all of them, all of them. Okay. Um, it's brutal. It's brutal. And Ewing shows that he shows that it's a massacre, right? It's a mutant massacre, you know, a la the, the 86 Claremont written event. Um, but then, but then it ends with the coolest event moment since 2015 Secret Wars. The, uh, oh, I, I forgot Legion. I've seen in the comments. I forgot Legion. Flipping Omega level Legion, right? How do you declare your power more than that, okay? Taking out Omega level mutants left and right. But then the very end of this, the very end of this, Ewing cycles back around, says you always got to make sure that everyone is actually dead. You know why? Because the hour of Magneto is about to begin. It is straight up the coolest event moment in Marvel since 2015 Secret Wars. I would say probably the last coolest moment in Secret Wars was when Thanos tells Ben Grimm to stand up <laughs> and he's a wall <laughs> and he does it. <laughs> oh, Secret Wars is great. Love Secret Wars. Um, but that's besides the point. Besides the point, it's been seven years since we've had a Marvel event moment that cool. That cool. It's glorious. And now I'm very excited for the Hour of Magneto. I think what that does a little bit is it salvages, okay, if he's not officially off the board, the resurrection thing we don't have to worry about quite at this point in time, it also salvages like some Araco revenge. There's also a really interesting thing going on here with the uh, Fisher King. This like just chill, cool guy who's buds with Mags, <laughs> who... I mean, every implication from this last issue is he kind of sees what's happening and decides, okay, we got to do something here. Every implication, probably to me at least, is that he's one of the three um, secret uh, Great Ring members. I forget what they're called. What are they, like the Midnight Council or Shadow Council, something like that, right? But there's three of them. I mean, I have to think the Fisher King is one of them. Uh, it definitely it definitely feels like that's that's where, I mean, I, th I think I might have pitched that even way back when, but definitely now it feels like, oh yeah, like this Fisher King, he's not literally just this chill fisherman, he's got a big role in Iraqi society, and I think we're going to see more of that. So I'm incredibly excited about seeing where X-Men Red goes, how Ewing continues to explore this event. I mean, one of the raps on on Ewing of the last several years is like a lot of his stuff, a lot of his Marvel stuff gets interrupted by events. We saw it with Sword in King of Black. Um, we saw it famously in Ultimates with, uh, with Civil War II, Right, and regardless of the quality of the event, because Civil War II is one of the worst events in Marvel history, regardless of the quality, he finds a way to like pull some good <laughs> out of all that and keep his story going. Now, at times, it's still detrimental to the stories he's telling. You know, like it tend like in these good runs of his, because that's the thing about like Immortal Hulk that is so great is Immortal Hulk never gets pulled 
into Marvel event continuity baggage. It avoids it. It does one-shots outside of the Immortal Hulk um, uh, frame of reference that are like some of the best tie-ins of an event. Like I think there's a King in Black Immortal Hulk one-shot. That's really good. Um, there's an Absolute Carnage one where I'm pretty sure Bruce Banner gets folded into a suitcase and then transforms into Hulk after. That one's really good too. But the point is you can read the whole run and not have to worry about that stuff. The run goes uninterrupted. I think that's the only Ewing thing that has that privilege, that gets that level. And I, I suspect some of this is, is his incredible ability to make continuity work. Um, he's probably pretty willing to play ball. And pretty willing to go along with these different event things. Um, I just think as fans, like with Sword, Sword was awesome. It was three issues of tie-ins. You know, so am I worried about that with X-Men Red? Not especially. Not especially because it is so central. Like the events of Judgment Day number one, the biggest thing that happens, literally the biggest thing that happens is an X-Men Red story, right, that has to be followed up there. You know, the destruction of Morocco and what's going on on that planet with those characters. So I think it gives Ewing all the best material. I think that's going to continue to be great. Um, I'm definitely curious to see what is to come there. I think it's going to be really, really awesome. Like full confidence that Ewing's going to nail it and then him and Gillen are firing on all cylinders. You know, the other big thing that happened in that issue as I'm kind of talking through it, I didn't write anything down <laughs> about X-Men Red, which is clearly a mistake. But the other big thing that happens is Iska pulls her WWE, I, I see the way this is going, and actually I'm with the other team, uh, her move. Okay, now we saw this. We didn't actually see it, I guess, but right, it was teased as something that had happened previously in Ten of Swords, where because Iska's power is to never lose, that very nebulous but very fun-sounding kind of power, in Ten of Swords, she betrayed all of her people, you know, the Iraqo people, the mutants, and joined with Amanth because she was like, well, I see where this is going. We're going to lose. So I'm joining that side. Um, she does it again here when Uranus shows up. Like, she sees Uranus. However her power works tells her that he's going to win. And then she just kills somebody on the Great Ring. This trick is going to get old. <laughs> it's going to get real old. Um, it's going to be a problem. Now, I suspect... That, as, as I've said repeatedly here, clearly I'm a fan of, of Al Ewing's writing and his thinking in the Marvel Universe. I suspect there's a plan here. I suspect there's some thinking as to how they're going to make this work. You know, in the same way that we saw Sunspot trick Iska, right? And, and trick her into using her inability to lose against her when Magneto took on Tarn the Uncaring, which I don't know that it totally made sense, but we saw a plan there. Something clever has to come out of Iska and her powers and changing sides. If it's purely this, like, oh, I'm on the other team now thing, I just, I, I, I don't know how you bring that character back into the fold in Araco after this, how you could ever trust that character in a lot of ways. Um, and it's also, like, she's an interesting character. I like her, right? She has family ties to Apocalypse and and uh, Genesis, right? And the Horsemen. Um, her conversation that she has with Magneto and Professor X in the Hickman run when they first go to welcome them with their cute little potted plant is like some of the best dialogue in, in that whole run. She's a good character. Like, Iska's important, I think, in terms of like, who do we know on Araco? 
right now, right? The non-Krakoan mutants that are there, you know, it was Tarn. He's gone for the moment. Um, and Iska is, is the other big one. So it's a character that you kind of need, you know, you kind of need, uh, but there's got to be something more than this. I'm seeing the question here from Xavier. Is there an Araku after this? I mean, every implication, I think it would be unwise to actually wipe it out. You know, I think that would be a real bummer. Like, it hasn't been around that long. These characters are all new. It would be kind of easy, right? It would be kind of an easy table cleaning to say, listen, we just established this in Planet Planet Size X-Men like a year ago, right? We can take this off the table and, like, Marvel continuity is not totally going to suffer for that. Um, but that'd be a bummer. That'd be a bummer, you know? It'd be like you put all this work in. And to take it off the table, I think I think there's no way that that happens. But it's definitely going to be changed. I mean, it's definitely going to have ramifications for getting whooped on the way that it was. Um, but yeah, I, I do expect it'll stay around. I do expect it'll stay around. I mean, it would be very, very fast, I think, um, to, to undo that for sure. So, okay. So that was, that was X-Men Red. It was awesome. Uh, Immortal X-Men, in the meantime did uh, more of a a la Omerdal X-Men number three, which was basically a Destiny, kind of like full-scale origin slash history, you know, and kind of a recap of who that, not a recap even, but like basically taking everything that had happened and making it one story. Um, Gillen and team did that with Exodus, who is another character that needed it. You know, it's another character who definitely did not have a heck of a lot of like, previous story that you could go to and really get a great feel for this version of the character that Gillen wants to tell, right? There's there's 90 stuff, like you have the whole, what's the one that crosses over with West Coast Avengers? It's it's Genosha-based, and it's Magneto and his kids. Uh, uh, Blood Ties? Blood Ties, right? It's an Avengers crossover. Um, that's an Exodus story. Mike Carey tells a good Exodus story in his X-Men run post-Supernovas, right? before Messiah Complex, maybe right after it. Um, but either way, right, if you're like doing a best of Exodus list, it's a short list. <laughs> it's a real short list. And what Gillen actually pulls on the most in that issue is this one shot that came out in like the late 90s. And it's, uh, I think, is it the Rise of Apocalypse one? It's like simultaneously an Apocalypse origin, an Exodus origin, because he's like a crusading knight, a Black Knight Cersei romance origin? <laughs> it's like all those things. It's a mess. It's not great, but it's interesting because of all the characters it includes. And Gillen kind of takes that and is like, listen, you don't ever need to read that comic again. And I thank you for that. I thank you for that. Like that was a that's a gift. I'm just gonna take what was good about that and the ideas there that are kind of interesting, and we're gonna blend that in to this Exodus, who is our fervently religious, um, to the point of being involved in the literal crusades character. And we're just going to kind of showcase, well, what does that mean for him? What is he actually waiting for? He's waiting for the mutant Messiah. He's waiting for Hope Summers, right? So like he is, he thought maybe it was him. Like he was the man, right? He was the Messiah. Uh, it turns out no, but now he's all about getting hope to that place. It's a really cool role. It's a good place for Exodus to be. I mean, prior to this point and to Gillen's ideas, Exodus was just like the camp counselor. Like he was just, he was just the guy telling kids stories about 
how bad Wanda Maximoff is. And now that we don't get to do that anymore, because she built everyone a nice garden, um, it, like that, that's gone. What, what is up with those kids, right? I had some dope theories about those kids and their Exodus cult. We haven't seen them since. What happened to them? What happened to them? Like, oh man, so many, so many threads just <laughs> scattered across the floor. Um, but yeah, so it was a good, it was a good Exodus story, which is kind of like the sort of thing that you don't need desperately, but making me semi-interested in Exodus is a win. I mean, that's not something definitely that, that I was prepared to be. Um, and now he's an interesting character. Like he gets the, the spotlight more than just about any mutant in Judgment Day number two is Exodus, right? Is he's the one doing the most work fighting the Hex. The Hex being uh, six Eternals that are giant sort of H.G. Wells-ish uh, aliens, you know, World of the Worlds-ish, huge, huge aliens that are destroying and, and destructing Krakoa. Okay, so we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that uh, because Judgment Day number two comes next. So get in your questions here. Get in your thoughts. Uh, we will definitely address those. But I think that kind of covers those two issues last week. Again, as tie-ins for a major Marvel event go, both are excellent. Both pretty seamlessly continue the run that those creators were already telling, which obviously in this case is a bit easier because they're connected to the main event themselves. Next week is going to be our true test. Next week is going to be our true test where I guarantee, I guarantee we get our first swings and misses. Okay, there are like five X-Men tie-ins next week to Judgment Day. Some of them are going to miss. <laughs> like, it's no no Marvel event in history has gone 100% batting average, right? Tie-ins tend to flounder. If we can get 50% good, that's great. That's awesome. That would put this among the best Marvel events of all time. Um, but really, really, I think what you want to watch out for is pay attention to, obviously, the main issues, everything Gillen is writing, so Immortal X-Men, and then any tie-ins Gillen is writing, I think. Is he writing the Death of the Mutants one, and, and maybe the Star Fox one-shot? Whatever Gillen's name is attached to, he's the primary creator across this event. You want to pick those up. And then, of course, Ewing on X-Men Red, right? Ewing on X-Men Red. As far as, like, the rest of the X-Office and how they're going to play in this space, for me, that's all wait and see. For me, that's all, okay, let's see what they can do that is interesting with this. Um, you know, because I, I, like, the only other runs right now that I, there's no other run that I trust as much as Immortal X-Men and X-Men Red. The only other runs that I'm highish on are, like, New Mutants, which isn't going to play in this space, at least not right away, because they're still doing the magic limbo story, right? Um, I don't think I'm forgetting anything, you know, because Sabretooth was its own thing. That's on a hiatus. Um, Legion of X, I'm super sketchy on. Uh, who am I forgetting? Knights of X isn't going to touch this. Wolverine and X-Force, I can take or leave. I, I probably have, if I'm going to pick one that I think might do the best as an X-Men tie-in, um, that isn't one of the ones that I feel like is a lock, it would probably be X-Men, actually. We got a new X-Men crew. Um, we got Jerry Duggan. You know, he can, he can pull it off, right? Um, so yeah, so we'll see. All right, get in some questions. I'm going to take a big old sip of this Hulk water, and then we will move along. All right. What do you predict will happen in the hour of Magneto? Well, he looks mad. Seems like he had to manufacture a new heart somehow or protect his with the metal armor. I don't know which. 
either way, it was cool as hell. I would like to see Magneto get straight up full-on revenge against Uranus. That feels kind of unlikely, you know? Um, or at least it, there's some machinations that need to happen to make that happen, right? Because Uranus, like, he gets his hour, and then Druig seemingly gets him back in prison. Um, I don't know how imprisoned this character actually is, right? But, <laughs> like, that's what seems to be happening. Um, so I'd like to see him actually hold his own. I mean, that's the thing is, like, Urano showed up and he beat everyone down so easily that I would like to see the mutants actually get a, a hit in, you know? And I'd like to see Magneto do that. I mean, otherwise, for an hour of Magneto to in full war mode, Magneto, like, I, he could show up and just destroy the Hex, right? And be that guy, um, which would be fine. Uh, the other wrinkle, a lot of wrinkles, actually, in Judgment Day number two. Let's 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 get into it. Let's get into it. We'll talk about those. Uh, first, we got to address this question from Bob. Asks if Legion survives. And thanks for your support here in the super chat. If Legion survives, just as Omega Magneto, can you see Legion trusting Magneto enough to form a mutant circuit? As he refused to help in planet-sized. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, we do have, I think, not the next issue, but the second to next issue of Legion of Acts number six is a Judgment Day tie-in. Um, that would seem like certainly an opportunity to play with all these Araco characters that Sysberger has been writing about, um, Legion included. So, I mean, I think the thing about Legion 2 is like, in theory, he should get resurrected. In theory, he should be a priority. But Professor X always has reasons he doesn't want to do that because he doesn't trust her like his son. <laughs> and uh, and also, I mean, to your point, would Legion even help? I guess here he shows up and kind of intends to, right? Like he's, I don't know, Legion's got a thing going on Morocco. I feel like he actually wants to maintain that and maintain this, whatever you call it, the Astral Palace kind of thing. So would he actually want to, like, lash back out? Um it kind of feels more likely, and it would be cool to see Legion actually engaging in, like, helping mutant kind in that way. Because that's the thing, is, like, he's not, he's actually trying to help people, it seems, generally, right? He just doesn't trust his dad and what's going on with the Quiet Council, which, again, fair enough. But in this instance, it's like they are literally under attack. So, yeah, I like that question. It's a good question. I think we'll see him back, and I do think we'll see him actually do something in terms of, like, teaming with Magneto, I, I, that'd be cool. That'd be cool, you know? I, I don't see it, but that'd be cool. All right. What else do we got? Um, okay, okay. Let's move on to the main event, because we got a lot to talk about. Okay, so, we got the Avengers and the X-Men. They're fighting off the Hex on Krakoa. That's our big action, right? Kind of sets the stage for everything going on. You get some real good one-liners between Cyclops and Cap, in terms of, obviously, the mutants can't really rely on the Avengers, even though Cap is clearly trying. It's a nice continuation it's not surprising, essentially, but it's a nice continuation of what's been happening through this era of all the heroes, the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, these kind of traditional standard heroes in the Marvel Universe, the non-mutant side of things. They all thought they were kind of allies and, and pals with the X-Men, and it's the X-Men repeatedly needing to be like, you were never actually there for us. You were never actually the kind of allies we needed. In And that comes up again, and I don't think unfairly... Um, in this instance where the Avengers show up and then immediately basically have to get off the island to do other stuff. And it's it's not unreasonable <laughs> that they need to go help save other lives. 
Um, but again, it is kind of like the mutants are on their island and they need to deal with it. Uh, and the Avengers are not there any longer to help. Um, but that's not the focus, right? This, this is not actually an Avengers story, at least not yet. Definitely through two issues, despite the fact that it is Axe Judgment Day. You know, I said in the first issue, this is X-Men vs. Eternals. Um, it continues to be that. Again, the Avengers are really caught in the middle. Um, I think you really only throw them into the... You really only throw them into the title, at this stage at least, because Axe sounds better than X, uh, EX, and uh, an X-Men vs. Eternals event, I guess they didn't think would sell. Um, so maybe there'll be more to do with them. There's definitely a lot going on with Tony Stark. The biggest thing that happens in this issue is there's a plan, and this has been in the works through the, the preludes and also the first issue of Judgment Day. The biggest thing that happens is they're making a new celestial god, they being Ajak and Makari, two Eternals. Uh, they rope in Tony Stark to help, and also they captured uh, Mr. Sinister because they need his help as well. Okay. The new celestial god is our narrator for this event, which is revealed as this second issue proceeds. There's a lot going on in terms of building a new celestial. It is a simultaneously complex and simple idea. Um, it is simple in the sense that in the Marvel Universe, the way they kind of explain it, it's basically like building a big old robot. Like that's kind of the way it happens. It is complex in the sense that the Celestials are the Eternals' gods. They are also godlike figures to all of the Marvel Universe that we know on Earth-616, right? So there's some interesting, very Wicked and Divine-esque ideas here about like what comes first, the god or the scripture. Who decides what a god is? What does it mean to make a worthy god? These are all interesting questions. They will not be answered <laughs> in, in deeply theological fashion in a Marvel event called Judgment Day, but they're out there and they're floating around. And that is in and of itself interesting to me. Now, I was particularly fascinated by the page where uh, the, the individuals making the celestial are trying to collect different pieces and elements that they will need because this is some really nice continuity baseball that Gillen's playing here in terms of like references to celestials and and things that have happened throughout Marvel history, um, it kind of goes kind of goes all over the board. The first thing that comes up is Erishim is is used here. Erishim is one of the few named celestials throughout Marvel history. Um, he leads the host, and mostly he judges. Right, he's very judgy. Um, he holds up his thumb like a big old Roman gladiator, uh, or rather, you know, the emperor in a Roman gladiator arena, and decides if Earth is worthy or or not. And, you know, basically the celestial host then decides if they're going to wipe out the population or not. Uh, capturing his judgmental thumbprint, which was apparently left behind, is very clever. <laughs> that was very smart. I think Erishim is the, is the one celestial who's also named in the MCU, um, so, so that is like, there's some, I guess, growing popularity, I suppose, uh, to this, to this particular celestial, because generally they're very nebulous, they're very unknowable, and, uh, and we don't actually really have, like, personalities necessarily associated with celestials, but with Erishim we do, but again, it's mostly tied to his thumb. Now, Erishim does debut in, I think, like, the first Eternals, if not the first issue, like, one of the first ones written by, and drawn by Jack Kirby. So one of the oldest known celestials, so that's a nice callback right, to sort of where they come from. 
The second panel of this exploration, you get the Dreaming Celestial. Okay, now the Dreaming Celestial debuted in the Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. Eternal series that came out, I think, 2006, 2007. Um, that Celestial is called the Dreaming Celestial because it, like, goes to sleep and it's just resting on Earth. It's kind of like what they've got going on in the MCU now, where there's a Celestial just, like, sticking out of the ground, except this one's more peaceful and also with the, the clear implication that it could be, like, activated one day and come back online. Now, it could have, except for in Kieran Gillen's first three issues of his X-Men run in 2011... There's an arc called Everything is Sinister, which I reference about once a week. Um, it's very good. And Mr. Sinister actually hijacks the Dreaming Celestial and turns its head into, like, a floating um, celestial base. Okay? He desecrates the Celestial as far as the, as far as the Eternals would be concerned. I've said it a million times. I will say it one more time. You should read Everything is Sinister. It's very good. It's very fun. And also relevant. As I called back in April... Dave Stiddy strikes again. The third panel here is a reference to Odin's destroyer armor. Why is this relevant, right? We know the destroyer from Thor. It's in the first Thor movie in the MCU. It's a classic throwback to the Stanley, the Manly, and Jack Kirby days of Thor comics. What does it have to do with Celestials? Well, it's actually revealed in Thor number 300. I think that's a Mark Grunewald issue, I'm going to say, um, that the destroyer armor was actually originally built by Odin to fight the Celestials off. They did not want the Celestials coming to Earth and destroying the population because they had a vested interest in what was going on down there, so they created the Destroyer Armor. Now, it didn't work. The Celestials beat the heck out of everyone <laughs> in Asgard, including the Destroyer Armor. Um, I think ultimately they somebody comes in and is like, hey, but Thor's pretty cool though, right? And they're like, yeah, sure. All right, you guys are worthy. Um, but regardless, that's where, that's where the Destroyer Armor reference comes in. There's a reference here to the Deviants, Facing Celestial Wrath. Uh, this is in the Kirby. This is in the original Kirby. That Lemuria, I think it's the second Celestial Host. And what, what we're talking about when we're talking about hosts of Celestials, it's basically all the Celestials get on a party bus and they come to Earth, but they do it super sporadically, right? So there's like four hosts, I think, that come, right? Their, their planned trips to Earths are very rare, okay? But on their second party trip, they came and they destroyed Lemuria, which was a the thriving capital city of the Deviants. Now, if you're not sure what Lemuria is, I wasn't either, but when I read that Kirby, what you realize is basically it's the basis for the original Atlantis myth. Okay, it's a continent that sunk beneath the ocean. This is based in real-world history that there was a theory that this was a thing that had actually happened. Now, this has been disproven. Um, or has it? right? How far down in the depths have we gone? No, it's, it's been disproven. But that's what Lemuria is, and it's, it's a reference to the Celestial straight-up wiping deviants off the map um, because of whatever judgment protocols that they've, they've determined. The fifth panel. This is where the fascinating ideas come into play, that these characters want a better god. Right, remember, if you've read the Eternals run to this point, Ajax in particular is having a, a crisis of faith that the Celestials are not what they seemed, that the Eternals' plans, that their plans for the Eternals and that the Eternals' role are not at all what they seemed. Basically, that the Celestials turned out to be very hollow kind of false gods and that the Eternals were never the important ones. It was always the Deviants who were the important ones. So Ajax is not in the best position 
to be decided. Like, it's like finding out, like, everything you thought about your religion was false, and then somehow kind of having the power to start a new one. <laughs> That's where Ajax at. Macquarie falls into a different but semi-similar situation. She gets lumped in here, okay? Then you have Tony Stark as one of the voices in the room where it happens. We'll get to him. And then Nathaniel Essex, a.k.a. Mr. Sinister. I see problems with those being the four voices that are determining what makes a better god. <laughs> I see some major problems with what might happen there. Now, there's a lot of Iron Man continuity in this sixth panel and also throughout this issue. So, just a quick recap. In King in Black, the event written by Donny Cates, got by Ryan Stegman, the end of their Venom saga, Tony pilots the Avengers Celestial Base to fight Null. Since Jason Aaron and Ed McGinnis took over Avengers in 2018, the Avengers have lived inside the body of an old Celestial. Okay, Tony turned this into a starship transformer to fight Null. So there's a connection there between Tony and the Celestial. There's also a reference to the Christopher Cantwell-written Iron Man run, which is going on right now, primarily with art by Kafu, and uh, Tony taking on Korvac by becoming a god. And, and when he becomes a god, he's like, you know how the world would be better if everyone was exactly as smart as me? Which leads to some funny moments, like Reed Richards saying, I think I just got dumber. Uh, but it also leads to massive problems <laughs> as, uh, as exact Tony Stark genius level intellect runs wild. And of course, Tony being arrogant, uh, he doesn't recognize this for quite some time. Right? So it, th that runs actually quite good. I've, I've enjoyed it as it's progressed, particularly the issues where Tony encounters Stiltman on uh, a paradise planet. Those are some of my favorite comics the last few years. No joke. Uh, okay, so there's also a reference in this issue about how Tony's dad, Howard Stark, was not actually his dad, which is a slight callback to Gillen's Marvel Now Iron Man run, where he does a whole thing about Tony kind of maybe actually being an alien, but I'm definitely not going to get get into that or recommend you read it. <laughs> it's not worth it, but I appreciate that he snuck it in there, right? You got to get a stick to your own continuity. Okay. All of those things, all of those things are going on here in the building of the celestial. That's a lot of nice Marvel continuity. That's a lot of celestial continuity. I appreciate that. It's all there. I think that stuff's fun. I think that stuff is, is really, really fun. And, um, does it all work? Like, I don't know. I, I've never built a celestial before. <laughs> Like, it doesn't matter, you know? Uh, but it does an interesting job, I think, setting up, like, what actually goes in to building Celestial. So it's not literally just like, oh, we called Fastos and he made one in 45 minutes. You know, there's there's some complication involved, although they do do it quickly. The other piece of Judgment Day number two that I think is really well done is Gillen does an interesting job of capturing the human reaction to this event. The new... The new humans that are introduced. There's six humans, and he gives six very different perspectives on the Eternals X-Men war. Now, this is good framing purely in terms of looking at, hey, what's the actual fallout and what's the actual impact on the people of this world? I appreciate it just on that level, right? A very Marvel's light, you know, that Busiek Ross gem kind of way of looking at stuff going on in the Marvel Universe. But what's actually happening is deeper and more clever than that, because not only are we getting the perspectives of these individuals, but they are also tied to the events. We hear the narrator tell us everyone here is important. Well, that's true, but it's particularly true for these six individuals who seem to be the humans matched to each of the six Hex Eternals. Now, why do we know this? Because when one of the Hex is destroyed by 
Exodus, during the battle on Krakoa, one of the six humans drops dead. That is the cost of Eternals' resurrection, right? Much like the mutants have resurrection, the Eternals have the same kind of thing. The Eternals, though, means that when an Eternal dies, in order for them to be resurrected via the machine, which is basically the fancy word we're using here just for the Earth, a human also dies. Those six humans seem to be the humans tied to the Hex. At least that's my theory after one of the six is confirmed. You know, it would make the most sense. That's smart. That's smart because now there's, like I said, you already get the human perspective and you already get the different commentary on what's going on, which is interesting in and of itself. Now you have the implication of if people find this out, now the X-Men are fighting an enemy who, if they destroy, they are simultaneously murdering a human and have to deal with the ramifications of that as well, which I fully expect that secret to get out there. Right? I fully... Because right now, it's an eternal secret. You know who is conspicuously absent as well <laughs> from these first couple issues? Uh, all of the main Eternals. <laughs> right? Like, Cersei's captured by the Avengers for very bad reasons in, in Judgment Day number one. Um, but Icarus, Cersei, uh, you know, Fastos, I guess, has a little role to play. Um, uh, Kingo, right? Uh, Thena. Don't see them at all, this issue, with the exception of the one panel that we're looking at here, okay? They're just floating. So the Eternals, like, probably are going to come into play, the actual known Eternals. Um, and I do think when they do, I do think when they do, they're probably going to be the ones who tell the secret. That's where I think this is going. I think those main Eternals, because they've already, they learned the secret in Gillen and, and Isadar, which is very good Eternals run. And when they learned the secret, they were like, we're going to go live with the Deviants, and figure out what's going on here, because we don't trust the Eternals anymore. We don't want to kill a human every time we come back. How many humans have we killed in the process, right? Icarus in particular has a hard time with this. I would imagine if anyone is going to tell the secret, it's not going to be Druig. It's not going to be the rest of the Eternals that are on board with this crazy war. Um, it's going to be these Eternals. It's going to be the likes of Icarus and Thena and Cersei, etc. You know, Cersei actually might be the least willing to do it. So we'll see exactly how that plays out. But that's where I think that's going. That's where I expect that to go. Um, okay, so the big the big end scene reveal is we build our Celestial, okay? Celestial's out. Let's see, can I get to it? There we go. Our Celestial is out, and uh, you did it. Great, congratulations. He tells the Hex to stop fighting. The Hex are like, yep, we, we obey Celestials. But then <laughs> there are problems because this Celestial becomes, goes full Erishim the Judge mode, says you have 24 hours to justify yourselves, Earth. You will all be judged individually. You will be judged as a collective. Um, if there is more good than wicked, you will live. Otherwise, I will wipe you out. Okay, so the Celestial goes into full Judgment Day, hence the event title, hence where this event is actually going. I really like this turn. You know, it avoids the trap and simplicity, I think, of an event that is truly like, throw down Avengers versus X-Men versus Eternals. I think that can get old fast. We move through it very quickly. A lot of it has happened. Some of it will continue to happen, but it's not going to be all of the focus. Obviously, a lot of the focus now has to shift to the fact <laughs> that there's a threat, Celestial threatening to wipe out all of Earth if there's more good than evil in the world. This is also the type of, of philosophical macro hardly, hardly unconsidered question, but nonetheless difficult one to answer. 
is there more good than bad in the world? <laughs> right? It's a big question. It's a question you can talk about with a child, but it's also a question you could talk about very deeply with, with professors of philosophy, right? And in terms of the nature of man and all of these things, it's perfect for a Marvel event where you're not going to be able to go into it too deeply, um, but just have it floating in the background as kind of a theme, as kind of a purpose of what's going on here. I mean, certainly my cynical, pessimistic worldview tends to be definitely the Earth's getting destroyed. If a celestial stands up and says, are people generally decent or do they mostly suck? I think we're in big trouble. <laughs> Fortunately, I am not the one making that call, though. Perhaps there will be a different answer in the Marvel Universe, right? Um, but, I, but again, I don't think you want to fall into too much of a uh, kumbaya sort of response of Captain America you know, holding hands with the, with the citizens of the nation saying, you know, reach down in your heart and all of us truly are good and want the same things. You got to be careful about being too simplistic about that because it is, that will be corny or would be corny. Um, but I, I don't anticipate that's, that's what's happening here. Uh, so, all right. So that's judgment day. Number two, um, it is, it felt a little messy at first, but ultimately as everything comes together, it's like, all right, yeah, this is good. I mean, it, I, I think it feels, probably the biggest criticism I would have of it is it feels like a main event issue that requires tie-ins to support it a little bit more. You know, I, I think there's a number of instances and things where it's like when we read the first issue of Death of the Mutants or when we read, you know, maybe the next issue of X-Men Red, certain things are going to click a little bit better uh, where when it all comes together, you know, I, I think that will be, it will read better, um, which is fine. That's how a lot of folks are going to read it. I think in the moment, what you can have with the main event issue is like, and, and I think Gillen's doing this intentionally. I don't think this is an accident, you know, so it's hardly a, much of a criticism. Um, but I think, it, you know, a main event issue, it has to have the broadest beats, but it doesn't get to explore them in a heck of a lot of detail. Um, and, th and that's where the tie-ins are going to have to come in and be good and, and fill in some of this. Again, I think next week, I'm expecting next week to be the the first sort of downturn in this event because I think we're going to get some tines that just aren't that relevant or don't work that well. There's there's a bunch of them. There's like five or six, and then as the weeks progress, I think it's going to all come together. Like I said, I think if you're doing the main Gillen narrative, if you're doing the Al Ewing X Men Red, we'll find out what other maybe individual tines might be worthwhile as well. This is a good event. I mean, this is off to a really good start. Um, like I said, it's it has the coolest moment since Secret Wars. It's on pace to be my favorite Marvel event since Secret Wars, I think I would say. You know, looking back, like, what are the what are the best Marvel events since that time, since 2015? Um, I think War of the Realms was decent. War of the Realms was pretty solid because it was it was the end of, of a really good long run by Jason Aaron on Thor, right? It had purpose. It had been building for some time. It's not a perfect event by any measure, but it was solid. Um, that's probably my next favorite of the bunch. Uh, I loved the first issue of Absolute Carnage and then didn't. Uh, King in Black, I was I was half in, half out the whole time. Uh, what else? What else? Am I forgetting something? Devil's Reign was fine, but it's it's not a favorite. So yeah, I mean, I, I do fully expect if this continues at the trend that it's been going, Judgment Day is going to be the best big old Marvel event since Secret Wars. Um, it's on it's on that track right now, which is cool. Which is cool. Um, and, and let's be clear, it's not as good as Secret Wars. <laughs> let's just be clear, it is not that good. So, all right, quick.
quick pause, get in any questions you got. I will address what I can. Um, I had two other things maybe to talk about, but I don't know if we'll have time. Uh, let's see. My two other topics for today was, well, let's do the drink. Let's do the drink, and then y'all can get in any questions that you have. Let's do it. This Today's episode is brought to you by water. You can find water over at patreon.com slash comicbookherald if you were so inclined to also enjoy some nice H2O. All right. Get in your questions if you like. I'll try and check out the chat here. The other couple things that I wanted to share with you all. Uh, number one, just a little a little tip, a little, uh, a little thing that I noticed over the last couple weeks. Like I said, I was mostly unplugged. One thing I did plug into was X-Men Unlimited, the, the Marvel Unlimited X-Men stories. I had kind of checked out on these after Nature Girl lost her mind. <laughs> it started, started just murdering people, and I was kind of like, I'll take a break. I came back online, and the work Carla Pacheco and um, uh, Steve Orlando have done is quite solid. The work Alex Pachnadel has done with a maggot story and, uh, and a cipher story about a mutant that is a language awesome. Like straight up some of my favorite X-Men comics of 2022. If you fell off of X-Men Unlimited and you have yourself a Marvel Unlimited subscription, check them out. They're really, they're really fun. Honestly, if you're just kind of like watching a show and you're not that invested or whatever, and you're killing some time, the scrollable nature makes them super, super enjoyable. But the pocket that written ones are like genuinely very good. I think a lot of the rest of the stuff is like, oh, this is actually like Pretty enjoyable hangs in the Krakow era, but those the maggot story and then this language one are like, oh, this is this is some Grant Morrison type stuff right here with the the mutant that is a language. Those are good. Those are good. So I am fully back in on X Men Unlimited. Um, I'm I'm excited to have these popping in Marvel Unlimited. It's a really nice value add, and uh, and and it's it's good stuff. It's good stuff. So if you check that, and I, like I'm not a maggot fan. There's like a weird contingency of. Actually, like, with, with every possible mutant, there's always, like, this weird faction, if you go online, of, like, yeah, he's my favorite mutant, <laughs> right? Like, say any mutant name and go on any social platform, and you'll find people who are, like, I love that character. They're my favorite, <laughs> like, to every single one. I've never had that kind of relationship with any of them. Um, I don't have this, like, weird affinity for the likes of Glob Herman or Maggot or any of these weird characters um, you know, like, I like them fine. Like, I like a lot of these characters. It's not, they're not to me, they're not Dr. Doom, they're not Stiltman, they're not the greats, right? Nonetheless, this, these issues made me like Maggot. They made me like Maggot. It's a really good Maggot story. Um, if anybody ever said, hey, you got any Maggot stories? I would give them this. For sure. For sure. It's also stealthily, like, this language one is like, I mean, it's probably the best Doug Ramsey story we've gotten in the Krakow era for a super important character. For a character that Hickman set up is like, what, like one of the most five most important characters? You know? So, recommend. Recommend it. Okay, the other thing I recommend, uh, yeah, I'd recommend it, is I met Chris Claremont <laughs> at C2E2. Uh, that was super cool. I, got, I did get to, I did get to, I had a family vacation thing, and it was like, am I going to get to go to C2E2 this year, which is Chicago Comic Con. I was worried I wouldn't. I did get to go one day, and uh, I met Chris Claremont. I, it was like, I got there early, and every other time I've been, at a Comic-Con with Claremont, there's been a line of, like, 40 to 50 people, right? And I'm always like, I don't want to actually spend, like, three hours of my time here just standing in line, you know? But this time I get there, there's, like, four people, 
There's like four people in line. I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I got to do this. So I get in line. I got a book signed. I got some Demon Bear signed by the one and only, the legend, Chris Claremont. Now, this was the day after Chris Claremont had done a panel that became like a t- Twitter trending topic for one day because he said a lot of wild stuff <laughs> about X-Men. Um, I, if you follow that stuff on Twitter, if you're that plugged in, maybe you know about it. If you don't, I don't want to do like a huge recap here. But basically, he got in trouble, more or less, because um, he pitched some weird ideas. He was clearly upset about the fact, at least from my reading of it, I wasn't there, but he was clearly like unhappy with the fact that like he wasn't getting in on the Krakoa era, which was interesting. Because previously it would have been like, oh, Claremont doesn't like Krakoa. Now he was saying things like, listen, I'll play by your rules, just let me tell stories in the Krakoa era. All of his pitches actually are like really good. He's like, I want to tell stories about the kids who uh, go to Krakoa, but the parents who don't want to go and tell these sort of slice of life stories. I'm like, that sounds awesome, actually. <laughs> like That sounds good. I'm generally not like, I'm not like, oh my gosh, we got to get Chris Claremont in the X-Men universe, right? Chris Claremont, here's the thing. The legend, one of the most important Marvel creators of all time. Okay? Inarguable, right? Everything we love about X-Men, like, like not what, like 90% of it is, is Claremontian, okay? And co-collaborators, right? Of course. Um, but so much, so much comes from 1975 to 1991. But Chris Claremont has gotten a lot of it bad since then with the X-Men again, okay? <laughs> like after that point in time, and it's never clicked the same way. It just hasn't. Nonetheless, like when you have, like, the, it, I don't know, there's like no comp is the thing. Like there's no comp for somebody who had a 16-year run establishing one of the biggest pop culture franchises in the world who like clearly still wants to be involved clearly still wants to be telling those stories, you know? And it's like, well, what do you do with that person? Um, what do you give them? And, th- and like in Marvel's case, they're trying to do like the X-Men Legends thing, right? He gets to tell right now a five-issue Gambit series. But that's all set in the past. It's set during his heyday, you know? It's not actually current Krakoan continuity stuff. But anyway, that's not the big reason he got like in trouble <laughs> or whatever. The reason was one of the things he pitched was like, oh, if I kept writing... Extreme X-Men or whatever it was or some story he was going to do in the 2000s, he was like, I was going to make Kate Pride the black daughter of Black Panther and Storm. And I'm laughing because it's real absurd. People got genuinely upset by clearly what is an insensitive thing. It's also a thing that Claremont has done, you know, with just these weird sort of um, racially insensitive turns to characters like obviously Psylocke is the most famous which Claremont repeatedly has said the plan was to not was to not keep her as an Asian woman it was to have her revert back to British Betsy Braddock but but it took 25 years or whatever the heck it was um he also does it with uh what is it Sharon Friedlander and Tom Corsi in New Mutants in the Demon Bear Saga that's another example right so a thing he has done before um and was pitching doing again obviously everybody would have been like like what like no Chris no, thank you. We don't we don't want or need that. But I definitely think that was like the most controversial thing he said. If you didn't hear about it, there's a really good article on Popverse um, by I think uh, I think Graham McMillan wrote it and reported on it that fairly and accurately actually says what was said in this thing. But anyway, I'm not actually reporting on that. What I want to say is I met the man. It was very exciting. I love the work. It's a huge reason why I'm such an X-Men fan. I got to talk to him about it a little bit. Um, you know, I referenced kind of like, hey, you know, you you're trending on Twitter. <laughs> What's up? He was clearly 
remorseful in some ways. Um, I, I think he, he genuinely was like in physical pain <laughs> because he had to like walk a long way and had a surgery. And then he was kind of making angry half jokes that just didn't come out that way. And, and it got reported on and it's a con and these things happen in this age. Um, but anyway, it was a cool experience. I got some being bear stuff signed by Claremont and, uh, I'm just, just bragging about it now. It was cool. <laughs> That's all there is to say. All right. Any final questions? If there's any final questions, I'll address them. Otherwise, otherwise we can move along. Let's see. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining. I really appreciate it. Judgment Day has been awesome. I highly recommend you continue reading this event if you haven't been already. Um, let's see. We got a couple of questions in here. Uh, what do you think of Sinister's reaction to Arishim's awakening? He seems neither relieved nor disappointed. Yeah, the, the Sinister of the building of the Celestial is very interesting because they bring Sinister in because they need help with the Dreaming Celestial, but they're clearly trying to keep him at, at arm's length. You know, they don't actually want Sinister driving the building of this creation. You know, at one point he's like, let me put some thoughts in, and they're like, no, you don't get to dictate anything. But knowing what we know about Mr. Sinister, <laughs> right? He probably snuck some stuff in. Um, so he probably wasn't that surprised that things turned out the way they did. It could definitely be part of his plan. Remember too, that like Sinister is kind of in this like data accumulation mode, right? Like everything to him is an experiment because he's got these Moira clones that he knows that when he gets back or if he gets back to Krakoa, he can just reset and take all this data and learn from it and change things the next time. You know, so he's got a really unique perspective. That's a great call out. I mean, that is that can and should come up again, I think for sure. Um, let's see, we got a question here in the super chat. Thanks for asking. What could Apocalypse do to turn the tide if he shows up? Yeah, so I mean, after the first issue I pitched, I think one of two ideas was either Thanos shows up or Apocalypse shows up to, to help the mutants of Arako. Um, I don't think it would be Apocalypse alone. Like, I actually don't think he would be strong enough to take on Uranus by himself. But if you get Apocalypse plus Genesis with the cool Annihilation helmets, um, plus the Horsemen, right, the original Apocalypse kids, maybe you could make an argument that their combined strength um, could turn the tide, you know, against Uranus. I don't know. It's a tough one. Like, they set the bar so high with Uranus and his armories and the strength where it's like, Legion did nothing. Magneto did nothing. But as was alluded to earlier in this conversation, if you get some mutant circuits going, I mean, they were all kind of fighting individually with the exception of Magneto, who did do kind of a mutant circuit thing. Um, maybe you just need to get the whole we got to fight as a team thing, right? That old trope. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Like just purely on power levels, I actually don't think like Apocalypse would be cool as a rallying cry, obviously just as that moment, but he'd have to bring the hordes of Amanth with him. I think to actually have the firepower, it wouldn't just be Apocalypse that could do it, right? I don't think that'd be enough. Um, okay, what else do we got? Can the other Sinister be an Eternal clone? What? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Could he? Um, I'd, I'd, I'd need to. I need to hear more about that event. I'm not sure about it. Um, let's see. We got one super chat that I missed. This is from John. Thoughts on what post-Axe mutantum looks like? Okay, this is a good one. All right, so I think we're going to get a 
Apocalypse and some of those mutants return to Arako. I think that'll change the landscape of Arako. Arako is going to need to rebuild. Uh, the Fisher King and the Midnight Council are going to come out. We're going to learn who they are. And, and there's going to be, I think, a rebuilding of Arako as sturdier and stronger as a mutant capital of the soul system. Uh, because obviously they are going to have learned that, like, okay, we were not prepared for an attack, right? We were not prepared for this, and we're going to be the capital of the soul system. we got to be stronger than that. Um, for Krakoa itself, hmm, it's an interesting question, right? Because it's like, they're in hot water right now, like, perceptually, in terms of they have resurrection, nobody else does. Um, Druig's turning the tide against them. I mean, I, I, I don't see a lot of that changing. I don't know. It's a really good question. It's a really tough question. Like, what is going to change for Krakoa and the Quiet Council and the way that they're doing things right now? I mean, I actually see probably if the Eternal Secret is revealed, I could actually see that getting twisted by Orcus and all of their press stuff to be like, well, that's true for mutants too, right? When they resurrect somebody, a human dies, right? And you start getting those myths and, and that idea out there, and then people are even more fearful and and concerned about mutant kind, you know, I don't see a turn towards like a golden age where Krakoa is actually accepted and peaceful. I see things getting worse, if anything, and and more and more pressure pushing mutants of Krakoa to be like, hey, we better solidify space because <laughs> Earth's a hotbed, and we're never gonna we're never gonna save it. It's never gonna get perfect. Um, there's always gonna be ignorance and hatred and bigotry. Uh, so kind of a downer, but I guess that's kind of where I see it. But I mean, beyond that, like, it's, I don't know. I guess I haven't thought about it a heck of a lot. I, I'd be curious to people's theories, like if they have big ideas about what might come out of this. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Aside from like the apocalypse stuff with Rocco, I mean, how much, maybe you get a little bit more with like sinister schemes and some sort of sinister destiny showdown, but that feels like an immortal X-Men thing that maybe doesn't fit within judgment day. Good questions. Good questions. I love it. I gotta, I gotta think about it. All right, let's see. I'll do one more question, then I gotta go. Um. <laughs> this is not a question, but a comment from Xavier that says, I had a whole meal with Claremont. Cool old guy. Eats a lot. <laughs> You're hearing it here first. Chris Claremont likes a big meal. All right. Do you think humans may have to move to Mars if the judgment comes out bad? <laughs> that would be great, but no. <laughs> Just because that would disrupt the rest of the Marvel line so thoroughly. I mean, that's the thing that uh, we haven't seen really at all yet, but like the classic event thing of like, what's the Spider-Man impact I guess we're seeing a little bit of the Avengers, but, you know, there's going to be Spider-Woman stuff. There's going to be Captain Marvel tie-ins. There's going to be Fantastic Four, right? We haven't really seen that piece of it. Um, I would love it if if the Marvel Universe took a huge swing like that and was like, yeah, the mutants moved everyone to Araco. <laughs> like, that'd be so great. Uh, it will absolutely not happen, but uh, I would love it. I would absolutely love it. All right. I think that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for the questions. Thanks for joining live. This was fun. This was good. I'm excited about Judgment Day, which is great. I'm excited about the Destiny of X right now. Uh, things are good. Things are good. Enjoy the comics. Thanks for listening. And as always, I just said it. Do it again. Enjoy the comics.